0: This is the Media Insider Podcast, aimed at giving you the secrets on how the media works and how you can pitch stories. I'm your host, Helen Croydon. I'm an author and a former journalist myself, and now I run a small PR agency called Thought Leadership PR. We specialize in personal branding, helping business leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, and coaches become thought leaders. If you like this podcast, please tell everyone and follow or at least like it on the podcast app. So this episode, I'm joined by Alan Rushbridger, who's editor of Prospect magazine. Given our listeners who follow the media, I'm sure you all heard his name. He is, of course, the former editor-in-chief of The Guardian, which he served from 1995 after several years as a reporter there and was editor for 20 years. He's also been an elected principal of a college at Oxford University and written three children's books and many, many other things. Too many to mention, actually. So I could ask you so many questions about your career, Alan, but obviously I want to focus on Prospect Magazine because that's what we're here for, to understand different publications. So I'd like to start by asking if you can just give a top line overview of the sections, so to speak, or the pages which you oversee as editor that will give people an understanding of how it's all put together.
1: Well, first of all, thanks for, for having me on and this this chance to talk about Prospect. Prospect. Is Britain's, I think, primary monthly magazine. We're probably the place where people can write the most long-form journalism. So we can run pieces up to four or five thousand words if we want. Not all of them are that long, but it's the opportunity to write, to, I think, to a different kind of sort of rhythm and pace from from a lot of other outlets in, in the UK. And we're extremely eclectic. So at the beginning, we have a series of five little lives. That so that's people who are just worth visiting. It, it doesn't have to be often immediately with a newspeg, but but they're about six hundred words each of people who, for one reason or another, are intriguing. And uh, ideally, an in-person interview. Will
0: they have to be in, in the
1: news for some reason. I, I think not necessarily in the news, but. There has to be some peg. I think you have to open the magazine and think there's a reason why. I mean, I, I did one recently on water cremation, which was, uh, was Archbishop Desmond Tutu was he had his body dissolved rather than cremated, and so the, you know that that was the peg. But it it just turned into a little feature on. A guy in Scotland who is passionate about water cremation. So it was not about Desmond Tutu, but that was the excuse to write about an intriguing aspect of the funeral business, as it were. But anyway, five little profiles at the front. Then we have in each issue five or six quite meaty features. I'm quite keen on the opportunity to write really in depth profiles of people, which again, that, that could be three, 4,000, even 5,000 words, really getting into someone's life and not simply an interview with them, but talking to their friends and colleagues and ex-friends and ex-colleagues if necessary. So it's a sort of slightly, I think, dying art of the profile. And then I suppose the way of describing the pieces that we're interested in, they can be on anything, but I think they should be intellectually provoking. I think a lot of issues are best told through stories. But there has to be a sort of policy or intellectual point behind it. So that, I mean, to think of the pieces that we're handling at the moment, we've got a piece on commodities, which sounds like a dry subject. But if we're to make the pivot to green energy, there are about 10 rare elements or, or minerals that will be needed to do that. And it turns out they're all owned by the Chinese. So, so how, how did the world get into a position where we let the Chinese build up mass reserves of the, the elements and the minerals that we're going to need? But we've also got a piece coming up on the Church of England, another piece on how museums are decolonizing. We've got a piece on the current issue on whether Britain should be bracing itself for revolution. You know, at what point does the sort of cycle of cost of living and so forth lead to sort of mass civil disobedience? So five or six features like that, and they can be across anything. They can be international, they can be science, technology, culture, politics, and just life, as long as there's a sort of a a gritty sort of something that's going to provoke you and your brain to think about issues more deeply. Then we have a quite a long culture and books run of about 17 pages. And then after that, we have a, a series of regular writers who write about quite an eclectic range of subjects. So there's quite a lot there for, for freelancers and PRs to get their teeth into and really quite an eclectic subject range.
0: Yes. So I've got a few questions on those sections. So the book section, is that mainly reviews
1: or is it features? The or book review? section Quite often has one big feature. We just call it books and culture. And then after that, it's mainly reviews.
0: Okay. And with the section of the writers at the back, presumably they're opinion pieces?
1: No, so the writers at the back, that we just have a. I don't know why we ended up with seven, but so they're regular writers. So we've got Sheila Hancock, the actor writing about what it's like to be old. We've got a, a young woman writing about what it's to, like to be young. We have a farmer, we have a Church of England priest, we have a, an ex-sportsman writing about sporting life. So, it's And we we got an asylum seeker writing about what it's like to be a refugee. So those are re- regular columnists, and so, so they're, they're a sort of rotor of regular writers.
0: And do you ever take guest writers for anything? Don't. No,
1: no. I'm okay. sorry.
0: On <laughs> <laughs> <And> what? <laughs> um, so, uh, what are your readership figures, both for online and for the printed magazine?
1: The combined uh, ABC is, is about 31,000.
0: Which is really good for this day and age of print publications.
1: I think it's good considering that it's not Prospect is, is more than 25 years old and it's deliberately stretching. It's supposed to be filling the gap from. I mean, there are there are lots of excellent daily newspapers, there are lots of excellent weekend weekly magazines, but I think Prospect has always been a sort of slightly more challenging read. And I think to have thirty one thousand, of course, we want more more readers, but I think we're doing quite well.
0: Yeah, and so I've looked at the content online, and it all seems to be you know mostly long form content. So does that mirror? The magazine. Is it an exact mirroring of what's been in the magazine goes online?
1: Yeah, I think, I think it's a pretty good reflection. I mean, uh, we, we put all the magazine pieces up online, and then we tend to commission one or two pieces a day in addition. We're speaking just as Liz Truss has been elected leader of the Conservative Party. We will do a couple of pieces on that, but we don't see any point in replicating what the daily and weekly press will pick over. But we do have a regular turnover of online pieces. And of course, there's some of those pieces, most of those pieces come from freelancers.
0: Right. So those reactive type pieces, like something on the election of Liz Trust today, that would go online and there'd be no point to put that in the printed magazine because it'll be old and out of date by the time it gets...
1: Yeah, I think I think the printed magazine has to have a sort of month, you know, it needs to hang around for about a month. And its selling point, really, we, there are quite a lot of people who say that e- even something like the Economist, people feel guilty because they don't get round to reading it during the course of the week. Whereas a monthly magazine, I think, it, you know, it's on your—sounds very old-fashioned to say coffee table, but it's on—it's on your table, and there's there's a lot to read. Each edition can be ninety pages, a couple of editions of one hundred and thirty pages during them. So there's a lot to read and get your teeth into and be provoked by you've mentioned I worked for The Guardian for 20 years, that was daily journalism mostly. To be part of an editorial team that, you know, fact checks everything, polishes every colon and semicolon, quite a lot of pieces go through three, four, five drafts before they get in. So it's the most edited journalistic product I've ever been associated with. But if people go to the website, they will find stuff that's generally n- not as long, but still operates to a high sort of you know, intellectual level. I think that's the way I would put it.
0: Yeah, and it absolutely does. So, tell me about the planning process. You're a monthly magazine. Our readers probably know how the monthly women's magazines work, you know, five, six months in advance, the monthly commissioning meeting, etc. Is that similar at Prospect? Do you have a monthly features meeting? Or is it a little bit different
1: because you're more new? Each week we have a meeting and we have a Trello board in which we have all all the stuff that's coming up. And yeah, so every week we will consider what's coming and what people are pitching and how this fits into the, the schedule of, say, the next, I mean, we're now thinking up to Christmas.
0: So in terms of people who want to pitching, whether that's comment or whatever, which we'll get onto in a minute. Well, are they best pitching just before that meeting?
1: No, everything is so off the page. It, it's, it's, it's difficult to describe. You know, I said earlier, when we're thinking about the people we want to write about, it's quite nice to have a peg so that it doesn't feel completely random. But at the same time, I think with a monthly magazine, you can't hope to really keep up to date with the political calendar. I mean, we are speaking Yes, to be more precise, at 2.28 on the 5th of September, our magazine went to press and we will get copies back in the office today, but the magazine went to press on Thursday. So we we have completely missed out on the Tory leadership and there's no point in trying to do that in the magazine. So we're deliberately... In anything we write about politics, we think, well, what is what is politics going to look like in the new year? Or what are the implications of the trust premiership for Starmer? I mean, you know, if we think forward to 2024, what is politics going to look like then? So, so I, I think anybody who's thinking of, of pitching something shouldn't get too hung up about what's happening now. But it's a really good idea to be thinking, what does this mean for the world? In two years' time, that, that ability to see over the horizon and see the implications of issues.
0: Yes. One final question, actually, before I talk a bit more about pitching. How many writers are on the team?
1: None. We have no writers. We have no. We have we we have the <laughs> we have two contributing editors who are on contract to write in X pieces a year. But apart from that, I don't know how unusual that is for monthly magazines. There are virtually no monthly magazines in the UK. I know a, a big American monthly magazine like The Atlantic would have, you know, maybe 10 writers on the masthead. We have none. So we're, we're very reliant on freelancers, on academics, on writers generally.
0: Interesting. Okay. So you use academics, you, you would commission an academic to write something if they had a...
1: We certainly would and do. I mean, the, the only problem with some academics naming their names is that they're so used to writing for their peers and they find it quite uncomfortable to write for a general audience. And that's fine. That's a, that's a very honourable calling, but it's not doesn't always fit naturally into a, a more general interest current affairs magazine.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, we we found the same. A lot of our clients are academics and a lot of what we have to do is develop topics into more layperson's terms. So I imagine then that you must get a lot of pitches from both freelancers and PRs. So perhaps we can just focus on, on the PR side and then I do want to ask you a little bit about pitches from freelancers. What might be the typical way that a pitch might materialize into coverage? Because obviously you don't do news, you don't do contributor pieces. So I'm thinking it's likely just to be an expert
1: quote. I mean, the, the most helpful ones, are the, I mean, it, it sounds too obvious to almost say, but throughout my journalistic career of commissioning, the most irritating freelancers are the ones who obviously don't read the magazine or the paper and are very indiscriminating. And you, you think come on, it wouldn't have taken that much time just to look at the website and get a sense of the... So the, the most valuable PRs are the ones who have taken a bit of time to research what it is that we want and to, to get inside, as it were, the, the the commissioning brain here and to come up with the kind of ideas that we've been talking about. I mean, I, I was pitched recently by somebody acting on behalf of a CEO of a major company who, who wanted to write about... Responsible business, and that's a that's a perfect subject for a prospect. You know, they're writing from experience; they understand the world, they're in that world, and yet they're trying to look over the horizon as to what businesses are going to be looking like at, and the world of social responsibility in business. So that that's an idea that we wouldn't necessarily have had ourselves. Came via a PR, and I'm pretty sure that will end up as a pretty meaty piece in in the magazine. But it was somebody who'd sort of obviously taken some thought and thought, well, actually, they the CEO wanted to write at length, and Prospect was exactly the right home for that piece.
0: So, do you get a lot of pitches yourself as editor?
1: Not as many as I'd like, to be honest. Really? Interesting. I mean, there's a generic, I mean, you, you can get me at Alan.Raspershire at Prospect. It's a slightly complicated email address. It's prospect-magazine.co.uk, or there's a generic editorial at prospect-magazine. I think actually it also works with just prospect-magazine.co.uk. And the pieces from people who can see what we're about are like gold dust, and less so people who who are not really on the wavelength of what we're looking after. So you're hoping for more freelancers to pitch actual stories to you? Stories and ideas. I mean, again, I think the perfect prospect piece takes something in the, that is in the news, but makes you think about it in a way that you've never thought before. You think, oh, gosh, I've read so much about this piece, up, but that, that feels to me like it's opened it up in a way that I, I'd never seen it like that, that before. And that is often just the ability to, as I said, think over the horizon, to frame it in a way that is more rigorous, maybe there's a, a data element that is missing from day to day journalism. It's just adding that that essential ingredient that is going to give it a longer shelf life and, and that people are going to want to read about and devote time to, you know, because it takes time to read three or four thousand words. Yes. You got any examples
0: of pictures that you've received that have ticked some of those
1: boxes? We ran early on in my, I've been editing for about a year, a, a big piece about the National Trust, which was in a way a subject that has been written about quite a lot, There's some sort of rumblings over the, the power battles with the National Trust. And this just placed it in a sort of wider context of institutions un, under attack. And it was a really lovely piece. It was about three and a half thousand words, beautifully written, had a narrative drive to it but also had a sort of wider point about how some much loved British institutions were finding the new political and cultural landscape of, you know, the 2020s to be really quite challenging.
0: And what about any pictures you can think about from PRs that might have, other than the one you mentioned, can you think of any others that may have materialised, either say, you know, as a, as a quote or as a case study Mm -hmm. or any other format?
1: Yeah, occasionally a PR will propose a profile, and I, I won't say who because I don't think the PR or the or the client would be particularly thrilled to to think this originates as a PR pitch. But again, sometimes a lot of people in public life these days feel at sea with the media; and they, they don't know who who they can trust, and also I think a lot of the media is very polarized. So you think, well, that, I know that newspaper takes that line on this subject, and I know that newspaper takes the opposite line on that subject. Well, the very first editorial I wrote in Prospect, in fact, the only editorial I've written in Prospect, was to say this would be my last editorial. We would never tell anybody what to think. and In a way, that's our USP. I, I think it should be a, a magazine where anybody can read it, even not knowing what the politics of the magazine are. I feel we have no politics and we have writers from the, the left and the right and all kinds of subjects. And almost the point of the magazine is that you should read it and sometimes be challenged. Sometimes you won't agree with it; That's fine. Sometimes you will. We Our little strap line at the moment is escape the echo chamber. And sometimes we get approached by people saying, well, actually my client is looking for somewhere where they can sit out their stall or they could be profiled. We've got a big profile coming up in the issue, which is going to be on the streets this week, of the very controversial barrister called Julian Maugham. You probably remember him as the one who hit the headlines for clubbing a fox to death in his back garden while wearing his wife's kimono. But he's he's, he's more interesting than that. He's he runs something called the Good Law Project, and he turned down a career in, in the bar to do this it's really crowdfunded law. It's it's something that's never been funded where they're they're doing a lot of judicial reviews of the government. And I could tell that he was nervous about agreeing to a profile. But when I told him the steps that we would take so that he felt completely comfortable with it. So that kind of thing, I I think where people might not trust a daily newspaper to do a quick sort of 900 words, more like the New Yorker profiles, which tend to be even longer than, than ours. But you sense actually, I can trust them because they're not coming at this with any particular angle. One of the features that we're beginning to develop, and it again it touches on, on what we've just been talking about, is to get people in the same space to see what they agree about. So, a couple of essays, a couple of issues ago, we got a guy who had spent fifty years in the oil industry and ended up as a very senior executive at BP to sit down in the same room as three people from Extinction Rebellion. And actually they agreed about far more than they disagreed about. We've had both sides of the trans debate represented in the same space because I've read so many pieces that just take one side, but actually to get people debating. In this last issue, we had George Monbiot, who wants to abolish all livestock farming, sitting down with a farmer. We had two people, two very eminent judges on the question of should there be a written constitution for Britain, both came at it from very different points of view, but both had a fascinating conversation. I mean, if anybody has got a brilliant idea like that about issues that normally divide people, but it's more interesting in a way to see what they agree about, again, that would be a brilliant idea to pitch us.
0: Okay. As in the psychology angle behind behind that?
1: Well, yes, it's really... So much of journalism tells us what we know that these people passionately disagree about X, Y, or Z. I think it's just sometimes more interesting to say, well, actually, you we probably agree about more than you think. And in a way, the media can sometimes be a barrier to those conversations taking part because we know that sells copies. You know, to take extreme positions, whereas actually, if you're forced to sit down with somebody you probably disagree with or you think you disagree with and are forced to have a two-hour conversation with them, you've got a completely different texture of conversation and, and argument. And quite often, as I say, agreement.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. And the freelance journalists who listen to this will find that really, really useful to know exactly what, what angle to take. And um, So just finally, any other pitching no-no's? other than not reading the publication.
1: I think that's the only thing. I mean, it's extremely irritating to be, to be pitched by people who have no no idea and haven't bothered to, to find because, I mean, it, I know it's only sort of 10 seconds to read an email, but apart from that, all, all pitchers welcome.
0: Do you get some press releases then, or, do, or does the prospect
1: generic email address? The, the generic e- email address does. And again, I find that generally less useful because they tend to be sort of quite focused on the day-to-day. On this theme of what's the world going to look like in six months or six years ahead, I mean, I would have thought there's quite a scope there for people working in the sort of technology engineering sectors or psychology Medicine, health—to just step off the daily news news round and say, well, actually, that this is going to help us understand trends and how things are going to be very different in, or, or patterns of working. I mean, I, I find this whole working from home versus working from the office argument at the moment fascinating. I and mean, again, it's one of those sort of arguments that's become incredibly polarized, whereas. I, I guess most people are probably somewhere in the middle. You know, there aren't, I suspect there have been massive shifts about attitudes about working from home through the pandemic. And we're never going to go back to the world as it was before. And I've, I find that a more interesting argument than the sloganizing of one side or the other.
0: Yes. On that Jericho email address, do you, does someone actually monitor it, or is it you? Yeah, it yeah, yeah.
1: no, no, it's they're, 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 everybody. I mean, it's a it's a tiny team. We, we've no, only ten of us in the office, but we all we all have it, and we all look at it, and all kinds of stuff arrives there. But anybody who emails editorial at prospect uk will, yeah, I can guarantee that an editorial pair of eyes will see it.
0: Look at it, okay. And how much would you say of that is ever any use to you?
1: A, a small proportion, but uh, you know, one one of the things about Prospect is it's not very well known, and we're just about to spend quite a lot on a marketing campaign because I think people should know more about us. It. So it's a, it's a people when they, when you get it into their hands, the reaction is overwhelmingly positive. But it, it, at the moment, it's it's quite a sort of um, well kept secret. Yes.
0: <laughs> well, hopefully this will, this will get it out in front of more people. And just finally, Alan, before we go, is there anything else you have noticed about media or journalism in general in terms of how things are changing, where things are going that you think is worth
1: mentioning? Well, I, I think it fits into the theme of what we're talking about. I think everything has speeded up. You know, so, Some of that's good. Some of it is exhausting. And I think people are gasping for air and just thinking, I, I just need more time to consider. I don't want to be preached at. I'd like to make my own mind up. And I value the context and the stuff that doesn't scream at me and doesn't screech and doesn't demand immediate attention. I think so much media these days is is just frankly exhausting and frying people's brains. So I think this tendency to, to move into media that is more relaxed, more long-term, a bit more thought-provoking, I think there's a huge uh, appetite for that. And the other thing is that this polarised debate, another polarised debate about social media as though it is all in the terrible, and all rubbish. And of course, a lot of it is, a lot of it's hateful, and, and you know, that's a big problem that we need to think about. But I, I also find it tremendously refreshing that the number of people whose voices can be heard, people with really interesting experiences and points of view, who can sometimes write brilliantly. And I'm very open to that as well. I mean, we, we ran a fascinating piece Two issues ago by an Australian sex worker I'd just seen on Instagram. And she wrote a really, it's about 3,000 words long about what it was like to be a sex worker, but in sort of, you know, in intellectual f- f- feminist terms. And I, d- I can't remember reading a piece like that, but she wasn't a, you know, a, a brilliantly recognized author, or, although she has just brought out a book. But I'm, I'm very open to the idea that the world we're living in now opens up all kinds of possibilities to people who don't have to be recognized journalists but have got something valuable to say
0: yeah yeah there is a, definitely a more open platform for non-journalists alan rushbridger thanks so much for sharing on your insights. it's all well felt and pitch away that's it from the media insider podcast Please share this podcast to any other PRs, writers, or just people who want to get into the media. That's who it's for. And if you're keen to raise your profile, visit thoughtleadershippr.com to see how we can help.